Uh, guys, as they're heading out, um, I, I want to be honest with you. Uh, first of all, go ahead and turn uh, your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 18 in just a little bit. Uh, but I do, I want to be honest uh, with you because uh, this has been a difficult week as I, as I look at this text because this is a difficult passage. Like on the surface, it doesn't look very difficult, but for whatever reason, uh, I think it's the mystery that's involved. Like Paul will say that this text is a mystery in uh, chapter two. Um, we sung about mystery a little bit ago. We sung about God's opinion over our own, uh, and his truth over us in just a little bit ago. Um, and so the very idea uh, of mystery is, is shrouding all of this text that we're looking at this morning. And so the honesty is that I'm still working through this. And, and so as we sit up here this morning, uh, like know that I've scratched this talk uh, about three or four different times this week. Um, I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound good or that doesn't look good or that doesn't like, it doesn't feel like it flows very well. So whatever comes out, I want you to know that this is like effort four, five, six, or seven, okay? Um, but I think at the heart of it, is that this is exactly what Paul was getting after in this text. That it would never be about our human wisdom. It would never be about our ability to control what's going on around us or, or eloquent speech, praise God, um, that, that would bring light to the truth of the gospel. That it would be the truth of the gospel that would bring truth to the gospel. And, and so this week has been really difficult. So let's work this passage out together. And as we do that, let's pray. Father, take this passage, work it into us. Um, your Holy Spirit has the ability to do what I can't do up here. Only he can apply this truth. Only he can work this truth out in us. And so, Lord, we pray for your spirit to do that. We're going to open up your word. We're going to open up your scriptures. And I'm going to try to teach what you, I think you've put on my heart. But your spirit is going to do the work of applying it. So would you do that for us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so one of my uh, preaching professors, uh, or, teaching, or uh, preaching mentors, uh, he used to say this. He would say, don't tell people what to do, okay? Pastors are notorious for preaching long passages or uh, preaching long messages, and then at the end, telling you something to do, and then hopefully you go home and you do it and apply it, and then you come back the following week, and then we give you something else to do, and we hope that you take it and you apply it, and, and every week, that's what we tell you what to do, right? Or at least we try to tell you what to do. He said, don't just tell people what to do, teach people how to think. Teach people how to think. But we live in a day and an age right now where access to information is endless, right? We are in the age of information, and I'm probably passing the age of information or whatever comes after that, but there is no shortage of information, but it feels like the more information that we have, the less thinking that we do for ourselves, right? Uh, there's so much that's coming at us, and there's so many sources of information. We just have the, the tendency, I mean, we probably wouldn't say this, but we have the tendency to pare back everything that we're hearing. And so we retweet stuff or we, uh, we reshare things that has come to us. And all the information that we have is, is kind of limiting our ability to simply think in our own line of thinking and not to just parrot back what we've heard from somebody else. And so the age of information that we have, to some degree, it's helpful, but to some degree, it's kind of limiting our ability uh, to think. And as I was just spending some time with the Lord in my quiet time this week, I was in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 4 just popped off the page to me. So I'm going to share uh, what Paul uh, was saying um, here. Uh, he, he says, in their case, the God of this world, and when he says the God of this world, he's talking about Satan here, okay? He says, in their case, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ 
who is the image of God. And, and I think when I was reading this, it popped off the page to me because it made it very aware to me that Satan is always trying to attack. He's always on the uh, attack. He's trying to attack the mind of believers. And he's also trying to attack the mind of non-believers alike. And the attack that he throws out at everybody is to attack the mind, to, to help, to try to create this, this uh, sense of, I don't know what's true. I don't know what, what, what's false. I don't know. Like, maybe I'll grab from here. Maybe I'll grab from over there. And there's no shortage of ways that he's tried to do this throughout history and from generation to generation. And there's certainly no shortage of ways that he tries to attack the mind of human beings in the generation that we live in right now. But we know that how he acts is to go after the mind, to go after our thinking process and how we think. And let me tell you, how we think is drastically important to how we will grow. And Satan knows that, and so he goes after the mind. And when he goes after the mind, he has a tendency to try to warp our thinking. And when our thinking gets warped, it impacts our ability to actually uh, apply the truths that God has given us to, to live out. And when our thinking gets warped, our ability to live out our faith gets warped. So how we think is crucial to how we're going to grow. Now, when I was uh, younger, I grew up in the generation of cassette tapes, right? Anybody, anybody remember cassette tapes? It feels like it's been forever ago. Uh, some of y'all younger generation in here like, yeah, cassette tapes, what are you talking about? Um, but, but not only did I grow up in the, the decade of cassette tapes, you were like, you guys remember these things. You put them in the uh, cassette player and you couldn't just program like, uh, send me the uh, song one, three, seven. Like you had to rewind and fast forward. You're like, is that the song that I'm looking for? Rewind. Is that the song? And like you had to go through that process. It wasn't instant gratification. But not only did I grow up in the age of the cassette tape, but also we had records in my house. I remember going to uh, yard sales and, and getting records from, from uh, this house down the road. My parents had records and I had my own little, what do they call are, are the little ones, are they called 45s? Uh, so I had my own little uh, records, these own little 45s, and I'd play them on the turntable in, in, my, in my house. But you know that there are, there's a vulnerability to records, and there's a vulnerability to cassette tapes, right? All kinds of vulnerabilities now. But we know that they don't stand up very well to the sun. You leave a cassette, play, you leave a cassette sitting on your dashboard in your car. Anybody ever walk out to a melted cassette tape? Anybody ever, like the, the same idea with, with a, a, a record? You can't leave a record out in the sun. Because you go out and you get the record, what happens to it? It's a little bit warped, right? I, I remember leaving a record out on uh, the, the basketball pad that I used to play on, and I, and I went to get it, and I was like, oh my goodness. And it was like, are you thinking that I'm going to play for you? You think you're going to put, you, put me on the turntable? I'm actually going to, I put it on there. It resembled a record, but it kind of did this. It was like, woo, Like, tapes that get melted, they resemble a tape. Records that get melted, they resemble a record. But the content has been warped on them. When the sun hits them, it hits the content as well, and it warps the content. So although they resemble a record, they don't play like a record very well. And, here, and, here, and here's the, the, the idea of this. Satan's desire and his effort is to, to warp the thinking of both believers and non-believers, just like the sun can warp a record player, or to warp a record. His, uh, his attack is to warp the mind and the thinking of believers and unbelievers as well. To warp it so much so that it confuses Christians. And not only does it confuse Christians of what is true, to, to, to keep non-believers from understanding the gospel or even to pursue the gospel, and then to create disunity inside of the church with this worldly wisdom, right, that begins to, like, to, to try to take place of God's truth, of God's truth. 
Worldly wisdom trying to take its place. And, and, and in that effort, what sounds good may not be true, but what sounds good to us, what feels good to us, what makes us feel like we're in control, it subtly begins to stand in contradiction to the Word of God. And, and to where we sometimes start thinking that we know more than God does. We wouldn't say that, right? But there's something in us that's, you know, there's this intellectualism that begins to like, you know, we're, we're smarter than we used to be. We're smarter than the generations that have gone before us. We've evolved in our thinking. There's enough time that's been passed down now that we actually begin to think, you know what, maybe I am smarter than you. Maybe I am smarter than the scriptures. Maybe I am smarter than those who've gone before me. And when we have this intellect going on that fights against actually the truth of, of God. And I want to tell you that I, I think that we can say with some level of, of certainty that in every generation with this type of thinking, Satan has been at work to blind the culture, to blind us from biblical and theological truths that point us to Jesus. And, and, and that blinding creates a warped thinking when it comes to what we believe about God, warped thinking to what we believe about the origins of life, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about ethics, what we believe about morality, what we believe, and, and, it, and it shakes the absolute foundations out from any type of truth that we can stand on. And, and when you look at the church in Corinth, you, you, you see a blinding of thinking that comes from Satan as well, and he begins to attack people, a generation of people, how they think specifically about the cross of Christ. There was warped thinking that was going on in the church and in the culture when it came to the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ crucified. And so last week when we were in 1 Corinthians, we stopped in verse 17, and here's what Paul said there. He said, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. He's saying, my goal, my passion, my calling from Jesus himself was simply to preach the gospel. The scandalously good news, right? That it's not based on you, that it's not based on your merit, that it's not based on your behavior, on how good you've been. The scandalously good news that somebody came and took your sin. And here, here's the deal. You guys are clicking up with all these teachers. You're doing all this popularity contest. You're thinking about he's better and she's better and they're better. And so these clicks are forming up. But the call of Jesus was simply to preach his gospel, to preach his good news. And that gospel came from the cross, not with eloquent speech, not with fancy pyrotechnics, not with flashing lights, not with fog machines, not with great music, not with all this, but to simply preach the gospel of Christ. Because if we add anything else to that, the simplicity of the cross, it gets lost. And so at the center of attention was the way that people were thinking in regards to the cross. Now, I want to be real clear. The, the cross was not the issue, okay? The cross wasn't the problem. It was how people were thinking about the cross, how people were applying the truth of the cross. That was the issue. And so we see this problem begin to pop up in verse 18. And so here's the dilemma. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Do you see the problem that begins to pop up right here from the very beginning of verse 18? It's the view of the cross. Does it make sense to you or is it complete foolishness to you? And, and, and Paul says, for it's written in verse 19, 
I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Um, that was uh, out of the CSB right here. We're going to move to the ESV in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? What he's doing in this li- these few little questions, he's calling out a generation who said, you know what, I think I'm smarter than you. <laughs> I think I'm smarter than you. I think I'm, I know I'm smarter than you. But, but a, a generation who said, I think that we're smarter and we've outsmarted God somehow. He's calling them out. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. It pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. So we preach Christ crucified. We're going to talk about the cross. But of those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I want you to notice here, in this, 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 this few short verses, Paul uses the word wisdom like eight times here. Wise or wisdom eight times in this section. And when a word pops up multiple times, it's the author trying to, to get your attention to say, hey, don't miss this. Pay attention to what's going on here in this scripture. Don't miss. So he's saying, pay attention to wisdom. What is wise? Now, now think about this. The whole idea of wisdom here is how a person thinks. Not just what they think, but how they are thinking. And in particularly how a person is going to think about the cross and think about the cross of Christ. Now, primarily, this may be some, this might be an overgeneralization, but I think there are two different types of thinkers when it comes to the cross of Christ, right? There are people who look at the cross and they think it's just downright and utter foolishness, right? It doesn't make any sense to me, and so it shouldn't make any sense to anybody else. And then there are people who say, well, the cross is just simply the uttermost power of God being on display. And you can't have two opposite views from one another that are so staunchly against one another. Either the cross is everything or the cross is nothing. They're diametrically opposed to one another. So so why would anybody ever think that the cross was foolish? We got to remember what we talked about last week with the Church of Corinth, right? This is this is a baby church, people that are coming from all different walks of life. Corinth is crazy. There's no limits inside of the city. You can do whatever you want. It's hedonism on full display. What you want and what you desire, you can go after. You can find it. You can get it. No one's telling you to stay away from it. You're actually being encouraged to go after and explore your freedom with full expression. Nobody is saying stop. Explore your appetites. Explore the hedonisms of your your heart and your desires. Don't stop. Just go and get it. This is the culture. This is a culture that Paul stepped into. And this is the culture that Paul is loving people inside of. And this is the culture in which Paul steps into and simply preaches the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus was, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that you've been waiting on. He's the Son of God. He's the perfect image of the Father. He's one, perfectly united with the Father. He's lived perfectly. He died a savage death on a cross. He paid a penalty for your sin. He paid a penalty for my sin. He was raised again to life to go back and to sit by the Father. And this is the simple gospel that Paul was preaching. He taught it to pagans who worshipped other gods. He taught it He taught it to Jews who could not simply get their mind around the idea that Jesus could perhaps be the Messiah. 
And he taught it to agnostics, people who could care less about any God. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not, but he doesn't have anything to do with me, and I don't want to have anything to do with him. He just they, There's an indifference of thoughts that there could be somebody or something that could be controlling life or leading life. And the beauty of it was that in the middle of all this, there were people from each group that had trusted Christ. Pagans trusted Christ. Jews were trusting Christ. There were agnostics that were trusting Christ as well. And all these people were starting to gather together and to be the church there in Corinth. They were coming from different backgrounds. And think about this. They have different backgrounds. They get different ways of thinking. Now they're coming together in the church in Corinth. They, they didn't come from the same mamas and daddies. They don't have the same. They've got different sets of circumstances they grew up in, different sets of, uh, sets of situations that their mamas and daddies grew up in, and they're bringing all these different theological and practical thoughts inside the church. You can, you can see how this could be a theological time bomb that was just simply waiting to explode, right? You can understand how there could be so many different views on what the cross was sitting inside of the church that had been saved by Jesus. There, there, there were different thoughts involved. Think about your workplace, right? In the cubicle, you, you've got people that are coming from different, maybe you've got, maybe you work with people that come from different nations. Maybe you've got people that come from a different state or they're coming from different situations in life. Maybe they're coming from a different air, geographical area than, than where you're from. And, and you sit down and they've got differences of opinions and you've got different things that, that you get excited about, different passions. And it's not hard to see how conflict can easily begin to erupt. And workplaces tend to have be filled with drama, Workplaces tend to be filled with, with arguments back and forth, people talking behind each other's back. It's not hard to understand how this could simply happen in the church because of all these different backgrounds coming together. It's not hard. And on top of that, the Greco-Roman culture was pluralistic in its religious expression, meaning that there was a, a diversity of thought concerning God. There's a diversity of thought concerning how many gods you worship or which gods you worship. There was diversity of thought in the theories of the origin of life. There's different philosophies on your ethic and what drives your ethic, your morality and what drives your morality. There were different expressions of sexual integrity and lack of integrity. There's different ways of expressing yourself physically. There's all kinds of different philosophies on, on how you do life in the Greco-Roman culture. And to some degree, it was applauded and lauded. If you think differently, well, let's talk about that. If you think differently, let's, let's talk about that. And you were celebrated if you could argue your point better than somebody else could argue their point. And so there was nothing there, though, that was limiting the, the thinking uh, that, that could be expressed. There, there was nothing there to ground the thought on actually. And if there's no foundation of an absolute moral, uh, a moral foundation, if there's no foundation of an absolute ethical um, uh, uh, beginning, if there's no absolute of any type of foundation whatsoever, then anything is free game. Any market is free game. Any lifestyle is free game. Any thought on Christ is free game. Any thought on religion is free game. If there's nothing that brings it back to an absolute moral authority. And so the simple gospel of Jesus and the idea of the cross, it gets mixed up into this diversity of thought, right? And it gets tossed around into this arena of, of public debate, rhetoric, philosophers and linguistic elites are going back and the cross becomes a debatable action as opposed to a foundational truth. And at the end of the day, this becomes divisive in the church. And at the end of the day, it becomes divisive in the culture as well. And for some, 
the cross was absolute foolishness. And yet to some, the cross was the absolute power of God. But what, what makes the difference, right? What makes the difference? Paul says in verse 20, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And what Paul's saying here in this chapter, and what he's going to say in chapter 2, I want, I want to let you know that we're not going to get into chapter 2 today. Um, but every week, we're, 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 we're hoping that you are reading ahead, and we're hoping that you're reading after you go home as well. So make sure that when you go home, you read chapter 2. Our goal is, is to go through, again, 1 Corinthians, but we're, we're drawing in the, the big um, problems that Paul is highlighting in, in these chapters, okay? So make sure when you're by yourself, you're spending time in 1 Corinthians. But, but Paul is going to talk about this in, through the rest of chapter 1. He's going to talk about it in chapter 2 as well. And what he's saying is there is a wisdom of God that supersedes the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world, he says, it's foolish. It's foolishness. And he says that it's foolishness because worldly wisdom, it can't have a divine point of view. The way I think as a human being just naturally can't have a divine point of view. It, it, can, it can only look, my human perspective can only look at the evidence that's in front of me from a perspective of, of human history. And sometimes I can apply my experience of life to it. I can uh, apply my, my own personal bubble to it to try to help me identify and understand what's going on around me. But human wisdom, uh, uh, the uh, humanity can never, um, let, me, let me try to get this wording right. The spirit reveals things of the spirit. Humanity reveals things that are true to human, right? And, and so you can't think spiritually from a human perspective. It's just not possible. And so what Paul is saying, he's laying this dichotomy that the worldly wisdom, it can't have a divine point of view. We're limited in our scope because we're limited by the backpack of our past. And the worldly wisdom that we carry, it, it looks at what our minds can understand. It, it looks at what's been uh, around us. And it tries to make sense. And our little, our, our, our little minds tries to make sense of a divine plan, of the divine work of God. And if we can't understand it, our natural tendency is to say, if I can't understand it, then it just can't make sense. You ever talk to somebody and in a conversation like that and, and you're trying to reason from the scriptures and they say, I can't logically get my mind around that. And, and because they can't make sense out of it, then, then it just simply can't make sense to anyone. And so Paul is saying human wisdom has a limitation that gets capped out on top of spiritual wisdom. On the other hand, though there's a wisdom from God that has a divine point of view that can only be given to God or given from God to his children. And all those who step into Christ are able to then to begin to look through a different lens because of what Jesus has done. They're no longer limited to a worldly wisdom, no longer limited to a perspective that is only because of our background and our experience. They're able to look through the eyes of Christ. Paul will say at the end of chapter 2 that believers, that you have the mind of Christ. Tony taught about this uh, a couple months ago. That in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. We're able to see through the lens of Scripture. We're able to see how He has put things together. And so how we think is crucial to how we grow. And so the question is, where do you start from? Do you start from a human perspective or do you start from a perspective that's outside of yourself in Christ? What, what's the foundation of our morality? What's the foundation of our ethic? What's the foundation of our spiritual truth? Is it going to be limited in our scope to our human experience or is it going to start with God and look at the cross differently? 
And I want you to know, in every generation, Satan has been at work blinding the mind of believers and non-believers to twist that truth, to warp it so that it looks like a record, but it doesn't play like a record. And so for the Jews, Paul says, they look through a lens of miraculous power. This is what was in the backpack of their experience, right? They wanted to see signs and wonders because this experience that they've had throughout their history, right? When God called it, like you got Moses, you got the burning bush. You've got uh, the Red Sea being parted. You've got all the plagues. You've got being led by a spirit or you got being led by a a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud at night throughout the wilderness. You've got... uh, uh, manna coming from heaven. You've got quail. You've got going into battles and you don't even have to fight. You show up and, and God does all your work. Their experience has been simply the miraculous power of God. And so it doesn't make sense to them that Jesus would go and die on a cross because that doesn't look miraculous. That doesn't look powerful to them. Verse 23, the cross looks like a, the cross becomes a stumbling block to them because they can't wrap their mind around. The Messiah was supposed to come with power and authority. There doesn't seem to be any power in the cross. How could this unemployed carpenter from Nazareth show up and die a weak and a shameful death on a cross and people would follow him? The cross to a Jew is complete foolishness. It's shameful. It was a stumbling block for them. And it was a stumbling block for Jewish men and women that would come after them as well, even now today. And Paul says, for the Greeks, for the Gentiles, those who were outside of the Jews, he said, they just laughed at the cross. Like, are you kidding me? You want me to believe that Jesus died on the cross? You want to believe that there was a God who put himself on the cross? The cross is foolishness. And so the megaphone of the culture is screaming loud into their ears, saying that this doesn't make sense. And if it doesn't make sense to us, then it can't make sense to you either. How could anyone who died on a cross be God? How can anybody who died on a cross be a savior? The point of view, it started and it ended with their humanity. It ended with their cultural experience. There was no room for a miraculous God. There was no room to see anything from God's point of view. Conventional wisdom says that criminals die on a cross. Conventional wisdom says that they don't come back from the dead. Conventional wisdom would say that the cross is foolishness, that it doesn't make any sense, it doesn't, doesn't add up. And there's a logical fallacy, again, that says, if it doesn't make sense to me, then it can't make sense to anybody else. And Paul's like, hold up, no, wait, what are you talking about? Don't follow, don't follow that slippery slope down the hill to your death. Like, don't do that. Verse 24, he says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, he is the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul, again, he's saying there is a wisdom of God that supersedes the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of God supersedes the wisdom of this world. There's so many reasons why people would consider the cross foolishness, right? There's no lack of reasons. But why would anybody consider the cross powerful? There's one view. How can the cross not be foolish? How can it not be a stumbling block? For some of you out there, like, man, it just doesn't make sense. God, the idea of God doesn't make sense. How could a powerful God limit himself into humanity? How, why, would a lim- why would a God put himself in human form? Why did he go and die? Why, well, that just doesn't make sense in, to me. And, and so you, you question and you struggle with faith because you just can't wrap your mind around it. So why would anybody believe that the cross is the power of God? Paul says, let me show you why. God doesn't work the way that we would expect. He doesn't work according to human wisdom. He takes, what Paul does here is he takes the mirror and he points it back at the church. And he says, I want you to look at yourselves. 
You're the reason why the cross makes sense. It's not conventional. It's unconventional. But you, your life redeemed is the reason why the cross makes sense. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not to boast in your measly little bit of wisdom that you think that you have, but the boast in the wisdom of God. It doesn't make sense to you, but the wisdom of God shines clear. I, I know like my kids will often argue with one another or they'll argue with Ashley and myself and they'll, they'll sit there and they'll think they've got it all figured out and they, they, they've reasoned with you very well. Now, now see, Dad, you see my point. Or see, Mom, you see my point. But, and I'll give them credit. Sometimes they put together a pretty good argument. But they don't understand the calendar. They don't know what's coming up next week. They don't know what's coming up a month from now. They don't know that we've got their best in mind. They don't know um, that, that we are working a plan that's going to be for, for their benefit sooner or later, whether they understand it or uh, right now or not. They just don't understand. Paul says, look, you're weak. You don't, you were pitiful. You didn't come from a noble background. You weren't powerful. And you got to think of people are standing around like, well, Paul, what are, what are you doing? I'm like, we're over here. We're just kind of minding our own business and you're being so mean to us. Like, what, what, what's the problem here? And Paul's like, no, listen, listen to me. From the perspective of, of humanity, you weren't very valuable. You brought nothing to the table. Like, you didn't have any, like, any, like you didn't have anything to offer God. Like, you think that you were something? Like, God put this whole thing together. And you think that you've got something that you're bringing to the table that you merited what God has given you? He said, no, that's not how this works. You didn't bring anything to the table. He chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He chose what was weak so that God gets glory, not so that we get glory. That's how it makes sense. And this is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing for them. It's also a beautiful thing for the church today. It's so encouraging to us. Most of the church that was hearing this letter, they didn't come from strong families. They didn't come from strong backgrounds, right? They didn't come from hedge funds. They didn't have solid trust funds. They didn't have solid bank accounts. They weren't from the popular part of the culture. I mean, some people did, but most of them didn't. Most of them were showing up in a hoopty. Most of them were, were coming with, with C's in the report card. They didn't have, they wouldn't make it on the dean's list. They're like, man, C's are going to get degrees. Like, they're not coming with, with the sharpest mind. They maybe not have been the sharpest tools in the toolbox. And Paul is pointing that out, that this is a good thing. They didn't have all this. See, the value of the person wasn't in their ability of what they actually brought to the table. The value of the person was seen simply in the power of God. And it's the same of us that are sitting here right now. They're, not many of us bring much to the table. Let's, let's don't kid ourselves. Some of us got, got it going pretty well. But at the end of the day, we're not bringing much to the table. And that's a good thing because we don't get glory. God gets glory out of our lives. So the cross then becomes this agent of God's wisdom. 
The cross becomes the agent of God's picture of wisdom and his power. And how so? What makes the cross so powerful then? The cross did what rhetoric could never do. The cross did what books could never do. It did what philosophy could never do. The cross took love. It took truth. It paid a costly sacrifice in Jesus. And it applied that truth, that gospel, that love. It applied it to a gaping wound that was going on in our souls. This huge gaping wound that needed to be addressed. That the agent uh, of... Uh, that, 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 that wisdom couldn't fix, right? There's a gaping wound that, that books couldn't fix. Human wisdom doesn't say that there's sin in our life that needs to be addressed. Human wisdom and conventional wisdom doesn't say that, that there's an eternity in heaven and a hell that's going to last forever, that, that exists. Human wisdom is about uh, taking things as they are, decoding the world that we inhabit, and trying to figure out how do I live my best life now within this mix? How do I take the circumstances of the life that I am and just live this up to the best I've been with no limits, no hold bar, like we're going after this thing, and when this life is done, if I get another chance, then I'm going to run it back, and I'm going to make it better the next time again. All the while, this is going on, right? There's this huge gaping wound that needs to be addressed that is the agent and the cause of all the hurts that we're feeling, all the, uh, the hurts that we're carrying, that we're trying to do everything that we can to self-medicate and to, to uh, doctor medicate and to just to run away from ourselves that we're just trying to find escape from. The cross is so powerful and it's so wonderfully wise because it addresses the real problem. Man's wisdom isn't the fix of the problem. It's the cause of the problem. Since the very beginning, right? The reason that sin is around is because we thought that we knew better than God. This was the this is how it started. And it hasn't changed very much. Like we still think that we know better than God. Jesus and his cross deals with that mess. What makes the cross make sense and make it not foolishness is that there is hope in the fact that God didn't choose the strong, that he didn't choose the noble, he didn't choose the powerful. Because then there might be somehow that we might be able to take credit for that. That we might be able to say that we had a hand in doing something. The cross makes sense because you can look around at the church in Corinth. And you can say, there's no way that you should be here. With your background, there's no way that you should be in here. Because of what you did and how you acted and what you believe, there's no way that you should be in here. You didn't come from good stock. You didn't come from a good background. You should not be here. The cross makes sense. Because you look around the room in Corinth and God gets glory. The cross makes sense because Jesus becomes the center of attention because no one can stand on their own merit. No one can stand on what they've done in their own conventional wisdom, their human wisdom. And the cross makes sense to every one of us who are sitting out in this parking lot. Because as we look around in this parking lot, there's not one of us, not even the best of us, that should be here. There's not even one of us that would deserve and merit the goodness and the grace and the love of the cross. The cross makes sense because you weren't noble. The cross makes sense because you didn't have anything. In the wisdom of God, Jesus took what was disqualified in us, the sin of our lives. He took that to the cross. He suffered an incredible death so that he might, in his own power, do something that the church in and of herself could never do. You should look around right now in this parking lot. Go ahead. Look around. Look at the people that are sitting around you. You're the power of God at work. You're what makes what the world would say foolishness 
the wisdom of, of God. Your life redeemed by God through the cross of Christ. That's the wisdom of God at work. And you didn't do anything to make that happen. Guys, we live in a culture today that says, I know what's best for you. I know what's best for me. And if God's truth doesn't square up with what he says, we don't, uh, uh, we don't conform our life to what the scriptures say. We end up trying to conform the truth and warp the truth to our desires and our wants and what our flesh says. We conform the word to us, to our liking. But I want you to know at RCC, at Riverview Community Church, we'll never do that. I, mean, I want you to know that RCC, like our, our first core value is God's truth over our opinion. Right? We're always going to hold his truth over our opinion because his wisdom is always, always, always going to be greater than our own wisdom. That's never going to change. And so we're always going to hold his truth over our Like we can have our opinions. We can have our likes and dislikes. We can have our own ideals and, and philosophies. But I'll let, I'll let you know that God's truth will never bow to your philosophy. God's truth will never bow to your idea. Our ideas, our philosophies, our, our human wisdom will always have to bow at the knee of Christ and his cross that makes it possible. That has changed us, right? Paul says in verse 30, because of him, you are, you are in Christ Jesus. You gave us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says your righteousness that didn't come for you that came from God. Paul says, your sanctification, your growth, that didn't come from you that came from God. Your redemption and the hope that you have in glory, that came from God, that will never come from you. So how we think about the cross, it matters. It's crucial to how we grow because if we somehow think that we grow ourselves and the cross is, in, and we're indifferent to the cross, we're indifferent to Jesus Christ crucified, then there's no growth for us. We can't mature as a church. So why is this important to us? Why does it matter? Because if we want to grow up into maturity, and if we want to limit the division, if we don't want to repeat what was going on in Corinth, then we grow up in godly wisdom. We don't just, we don't just major on our human wisdom and just settle into that. Like we get into the scriptures, we grow, we allow God to shape and deform our mind. Spiritual maturity is in fact that. It's spiritual maturity, not human maturity. It's spiritual maturity. Satan is going to try to blind us. He's going to try to warp the truth. He's going to try to dull our senses. He's going to warp our thinking. He's going to take the truth. He's going to twist it just enough to where it looks mostly right, but doesn't play well on the record player. And warped thinking will always lead to a warped theology. And a warped theology is going to confuse Christians. It's going to confuse non-believers. It's going to push people away from the gospel. It's going to create apathy inside of us. And ultimately, it's going to lead to disunity because now the arbitrator of truth is no longer the Lord and his wisdom. The arbitrator of truth becomes ourselves, right? Warped thinking will always lead to funky behavior. You know, it just will. And so the question that you may have, well, do we just not study? Do we not do anything? Like, should Christians not seek wisdom? No, no, Christians should seek wisdom. Right? We, we, we should seek wisdom, but not, anti but, but, not, but not an anti-intellectual kind of, kind of or uh, we, we should seek um, wisdom that isn't, uh, uh, let me try to get my mind right. Should we seek wisdom? Yes, we should seek wisdom. Not wisdom that is anti-God. Not wisdom that pulls us away from, but that starts with God. The scriptures tell us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. So one of the ways that we love Christ is with our mind. One of the ways that we grow 
is, is with our mind. So we don't stop and we don't, we don't stop pursuing truth. We don't stop pursuing and growing in our minds. We just start at a different place, right? We start with, with Christ. That's how we think. Another question that you might have is, how do we recognize true wisdom over human wisdom? And I had to answer that with a question. Does it point you to Jesus? Does the wisdom point you to Jesus? If it only points you back to the sophistication and the intellect of the person who's talking, then it's not spiritual wisdom. The Spirit will always lead us back to God. The Spirit will always make a big deal about who God is, not a big deal about who the speaker is. Read chapter 2 when you go home. Because the Spirit applies the Spirit to our lives. Don't miss chapter 2. If you go home and you don't read chapter 2, you're, you're missing a large component of what is able to apply what we're talking about this morning, okay? So go home, read chapter 2. The Spirit applies the truth of the Spirit, spiritual things. Guys, people will always be confronted with the scandal of the grace of the cross. To some, it's going to be foolishness. To some, it's going to be the power of God that leads to life. And the Holy Spirit's going to do that work. What will bring unity to the church and break down false ideas in our own human wisdom is simply going to be the Spirit of God doing work in us as we allow Him to do that work. Would you pray? Father, you know I'm still working this out in my own mind. And so as I'm speaking, I'm thinking through this stuff. I'm, I'm, it's hard to talk about what we think about. It's hard to talk about something that is a mystery. But yet the mystery of the cross is our life. The mystery of the cross is what gives us a solid foundation that we can build ethic and morality on. The cross is what gives us hope. Christ crucified will always be our life. And Father, we don't always know how that works out in day-to-day -day living. But you do. Your spirit does. And so we just want to be completely available to you. Lord, we, we don't want to just seek information for inf information's sake. We want to seek information that's going to lead us to you. That will challenge us in our thinking, of course. We're not going to not study. We're not going to not read. We're not going to um, throw away the gift of our mind because it is a gift. But you've given us our mind, you've given us our intellect, you've given us our brain to point us to you. And so where we've faced challenge in our faith and where we've looked to human wisdom rather than to your wisdom, Father, forgive us. Father, where we've turned to our own understandings and our own opinion over your truth, Father, forgive us. And I pray each day as we move forward in Christ, Father, that we would... Um, more and more put ourselves under your word, under your authority, under your kingdom, as opposed to living in our own wisdom. That's never going to have a good end. But Father, we want to pursue you. Help us to do that through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.